scripture reading will be from Luke chapter 4, the whole chapter. We'll be reading from Luke chapter 4. Hear the word of God. And Jesus, being filled with the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Being forty days tempted by the devil, and in those days he did eat nothing. And when they were ended, he afterward hungered. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And the devil, taking him up to a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power I will give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomever I will give it. If thou wilt, therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And he brought him to Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. For it is written, He shall give him angels charge over thee to keep thee and in their hands they shall bear thee up lest at any time thou shalt dash dash thy foot against a stone and Jesus answered and said unto him it is said thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God and the devil had ended all the temptations he departed for him for a season And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And there went out a fame of him through all the regions around him. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Elias. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, and to set liberty them that are bruised and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister, and sat down. And the eyes of all of them were, that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. And all bear witness and wondered at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? 
And he said unto them, Ye will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And he said, Verily, I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. And I tell you a truth. Many widows were in Israel in the day of Elias, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, with great famine throughout all the land. And unto none of them was Elias sent, set for Saperta, the city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers in Israel were in the time of Elisus the prophet. And none of them were cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. And all that were in the synagogue, when he had heard, they had heard these things, were filled with wrath. And they rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. And he passed through the midst of them and went his way. And came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and taught them in the synagogues. And they were astonished at his doctrine for his, power, his word was with power. And in the synagogue were, there was a man which had a spirit of an unclean devil. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone, that we, we may, what have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee, who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace, and come out of him. And when the devil had, had thrown him into the midst, he went out of him, and hurt him not. And they were all amazed, and spake among themselves, saying, What a word is this? With, for with authority and power he commandeth the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the fame of him went into every place of the country round about. And he arose out of the synagogue and entered into Simeon's house. And Simeon's wife's mother had taken from with a great fever, and they besought him for her. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and ministered unto them. Now when the sun was setting, all they that had any sick with diverse diseases brought them unto him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And Devils had also come out of many, crying out and saying, Thou art Christ, the Son of God. And he rebuked them, suffering them not to speak, for they knew that he was Christ. And when it was day, he departed, and he went into a desert place. 
And the people sought him and came unto him and stayed him, that they should not depart from them. And he said unto them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for therefore I am sent. And he preached in the synagogues of Galilee. May the Lord add his blessing to the public reading of his word. Dear congregation, I want you to imagine, just for a second, if it wasn't me this morning bringing the word, if it wasn't me standing before you, but it was the Lord Jesus Christ coming behind this pulpit to proclaim the word of God. What an event that would be. Like, just picture Jesus Christ, the one that we come week after week after week to hear from, to worship, to draw near to. If he were to come here in this pulpit and preach the word of God. You know, as I look out and there's young people, some of you three, four, five years old, this would be something that you would remember into your 50s and 60s and 70s and on to the rest of your life, the day that Jesus Christ came to this little church. What an incredible event. And you think about, like, this is what happened in this little town of Nazareth so many years ago. This little town of Nazareth where Jesus had grown up had the privilege of hearing their Messiah declare the word of God. But what happened? Something astonishing happened because this little town that knew Jesus so well rejected him, rejected him. They rejected him. And there's something to be said about this because oftentimes familiarity breeds a little bit of contempt. They knew who he was. And this morning, I want us to consider Jesus' sermon. Um, Jesus' first sermon, public sermon recorded for us in the scripture. Jesus comes and he offers the good news to the poor and to the broken and to the needy. Yet, he will pass by those who reject him in unbelief. And I want us to consider this under three headings. A gracious message. A passionate rejection by spectators and a shocking outcome. A gracious message of Christ. Now, let us get the context of what's going on. Our Lord Jesus just came out of the wilderness, um, out of just being tempted 40 days and 40 nights by the devil himself. And where Israel had failed in the wilderness for 40 years and for, Jesus conquers, is victorious, and now he's filled with the Spirit of God. And he begins preaching in Galilee, and his fame starts to spread throughout all the land. 
There's this one that's healing. There's this one that's casting out devils. There's this one that's doing miracles within our midst. Like, who is he? Who is he? It's Jesus. Some know him. Some don't know him. But whoever he is, his fame is growing. And this is where Luke begins to give us an orderly account of the public ministry of Christ. Jesus Christ is entering his public ministry now with his first sermon. And he comes to his hometown, Nazareth, where he had been grown up. And it says here, as it was his custom, he goes to the synagogue. He wasn't just a mere spectator that morning, but he was the teacher that morning. And this teaches us something very important about the importance of the public means of grace, about public worship. You know, Jesus gave importance and emphasis to this. You think about in those days, in those days, there wasn't more than likely much um, enjoyment of the Spirit of God working in their lives. This was dark times. The last prophet to speak to them was well over 400 years. And Judaism and the church at that time was declining more and more. But we see Jesus going to this house of worship, the synagogue, reading, preaching, teaching there. This was a place where the Lord's day was kept, where the word of God, the law of God was preached and proclaimed. And Jesus honored it. Despite all of his deficiencies, the Lord Jesus Christ honored it. And we're called to do the same. We're called to do the same. Um, with the public means of grace, with all the means of grace. Moreover, we see Jesus, he knew, he knew his Bible very well. He is handed over a, scr- a scroll, not a book with chapters and verses, but an entire scroll of the Bible, an entire 30-foot-long scroll, and immediately Jesus is able to pinpoint where he wants to go what we would call Isaiah 66, Jesus is able to open it up. And here is where I want to read. You know, this teaches us how well Jesus knew the Bible, the scriptures. He lived it. He breathed it. He knew it. And the question arises for us today is, how well do we know our Bible? Do you know what chapter 61 of Isaiah is about. Do you know what the book of Isaiah is about? Do you know what the book of Luke is about? You know, we're called to know scripture and we're called, we're called to be men and women of the word. Um, like Christ, let us breathe this. Let us know the Bible. Let us read it and meditate upon it, especially on this Lord's day. And Moreover, Jesus declares his, the nature of his mission. You know, what's fascinating about all of this is that he declares with such passion, with such zeal, with such love and desire, things of which 
the Jewish um, people at that time had not normally heard or been around of. You know, at those times, the rabbis would quote other rabbis and would quote other rabbis. But Jesus declares with authority and power um, his nature and work of his mission as the Messiah. The kingdom of God is being realized. It's, being, it's coming with his presence, with the arrival of Christ. Jesus announces all the Old Testament prophecies are being fulfilled, and they're being fulfilled right now in your hearing. The announcement of his coming is the announcement of the kingdom being inaugurated with his presence. He's not, he's not simply saying the kingdom of God is near, like John the Baptist, but he's saying the kingdom of God has come with my presence, and I am the king. That was the context, what was going on. Um, and the spirit, this kingdom is not just a, a physical kingdom, but it is a spiritual kingdom over the hearts and minds of men and women. And as he opens up the scroll, and he reads from Isaiah 61, verse 1, Jesus makes three things very clear. One, that he is the anointed by the Spirit to perform a specific ministry. He is the Messiah, too, who declares the arrival of a new era, the kingdom of Christ. And three, he will actually bring about the release of what he proclaims. The blind will see the captives will be set free and the poor will have the gospel preached to them. And in this way, Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. He's the prophet of God who declares the word of God with all power and all authority. Not like the rabbis before him, but with power he declares the word of God. He is the king. And proclaiming these words, he asserts his fulfillment with the, with the arrival of his presence as he is king and he is the priest. All of which this is made possible with the sacrifice that he has made on our behalf as our great high priest. Do you know him? Do you know this Christ? Do you know this prophet, this king, this priest? Have you heard his voice? in public readings and in private? Does he have a claim over your life as king where he guides and directs you? Have you believed his sacrifice as a priest, paying for sins? Now, I want us to look at uh, just the nature of the work that Christ has come to perform. And in this passage, it's actually fourfold. He declares and preaches the gospel to the poor. He set captives free. He gives sight to the blind. And he gives the acceptable year of the Lord with his coming. I want to look at each one of these um, and apply it. One, bringing the gospel to the poor. 
The word poor here is the same word that is used with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor is more than just economical, um, not having means, but it's somebody who knows their spiritual condition before God, who understands that before a holy, righteous, good God, they are sinners in his sight, and they're people that are broken over their sin. It's people who know in the light of God that they are spiritually bankrupt. These are the ones that Jesus looks upon. And as he looks upon the congregation, he knows, he knows that the people he had grown up with are poor. You know, he knows this. And he knows that they are in need of desperate grace, the grace of God. And you think about, like, God, who is holy, transcendent, pure, his Father, who he has known since eternity past, has intimate communion with, is now coming to this town of Nazareth, and he's bridging the gap between heaven and earth, between who the Father is and was and will be for all of eternity, that perfect one, holy one, with sinners that he had grown up with day in and day out when he was five, six, seven years old. He's bringing them together. And the amazing thing about this is that God actually considers the poor and broken Isaiah 66 says that, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build for me? And where is the place of my rest? For all these things hath my hand made, and all these things have been, saith the Lord. But on this man I will look, even of him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembles at his word. This is what Jesus Christ is doing. He's bridging the gap between heaven and earth with his arrival. And he's doing this even today. Do you, have you recognized your spiritual poverty before God? Do you continue to do so? Because if you do, this gospel is for you. Not only... Is it for the poor? But he sets liberty, the captives, those who are oppressed. Now, what is a captive? What what does it speak of? A captive is somebody who is carried into exile by a conquering force, dragged away from their homeland, transported to another country, and they endure hardship. Captivity is so often symbolized by sin and Satan throughout Scripture. Jesus said, He who sins is a slave to sin, captive, slave to sin, to be in bondage over sin. Now, in our day of age, there's many, many uh, 
things that hold us captive, uh, that will bring us into uh, enslavement. Things like pornography. Things like riches and the pleasures of this world. Things like pride and the pursuit of all the good things of this life and forget about God. Captivity brings you into bondage where you no longer seek after the things of God but are under the yoke of this taskmaster, the devil. Are you in bondage? Who are you serving ultimately in life? You know, if you recognize that you too also were in bondage and call out to the Lord, he will give freedom, freedom to those who repent and believe and trust in him. But he also gives sight to the blind, giving sight to the blind. Have you ever wondered what it'd be like to be blind? Do you know somebody who is blind? Blind, blindness. Think about what it would be like not to be able to see the world around you, not to be able to see the sunshine, this beautiful day, trees and color and shapes and sizes, not be able to recognize any of these things. Just totally foreign. Blindness. That's how the Bible describes people who don't know Christ. That's how people who, in their natural state, have never come to the Lord, are spiritual blind. Now, how? How are they blind? Well, one question to ask yourself is, what are you looking at? Are you just looking at the things of this world and in pursuit of the material? Because if you are, if all you're looking at is the things of this world and in the material, and you do not have spiritual eyes where you look upon the kingdom of God and the spiritual, you're blind. You're really blind, and you don't see life as how it really is. You don't see truth as it really is. And being blind has its effects in life. Stumbling, fumbling, not knowing what the purpose and where you're going and where you're at. But Christ gives sight to the blind so that you can understand and see the spiritual and understand why you're here and behold the glory of Christ who is the end of all things for whom we were created for, to worship God and glorify him forever. Do you have eyes to see? Do you know him? Can you see him? You know, in the church, you have the means of grace so often declared, and you see the kingdom of God in its um, physical, outwardly effects. You see people get saved every now and then. And you see um, the external, physical effects of the kingdom of God. And this is what Jesus said to Nicodemus. You might see the winds blow. And you might see the effects of it in the trees and the leaves. But until you have eyes to see, you haven't experienced the truth of this kingdom.
He gives sight to the blind. But he also proclaims here that he'll, um, now is the acceptable year of the Lord. What does this mean? What does it mean to be the acceptable year of the Lord? You know, this is in reference to the year of Jubilee. What is the year of Jubilee? Every 50th year, the Israelites were to have this special year where all debts would be forgiven, lands would be restored, slaves would be given their freedom. There would be a year of restoration and jubilee. The trumpets would blow and there would be a restarting. Um, This is the year of jubilee. And this year of jubilee started initiated a new start. And this is the imagery that Isaiah is speaking about. This is the imagery that Jesus is speaking about, alluding to, saying that it has come. Now is the year of jubilee. He brings about a new start, a new birth, a new beginning, a new creation with the arrival of his kingdom. New creation is being brought forth and it's entering into the old creation and it's creating new life. Um, now, this, this is initiated and offered to anybody who comes to him in repentance and faith. He offers freedom. Freedom from guilt. Freedom from the pollutions of this world, from Satan and sin. You see, our sin has made us guilty and we're enslaved to it. Made us blind and we're blind. Has made us poor but he offers the acceptable year with his arrival, and he gives the year of jubilee. Um, you're lying, cheating, stealing, lust, pride, guilt before God can be made right before him, and you can be made free. Be free when an accused man is declared not guilty when he when a slave is emancipated he's set free set free from all the things that held them back are you free from the power of sin from the guilt of sin because this is what Christ offers is true freedom of the soul and interestingly enough Jesus stops here in his reading of Isaiah because when you look at the original text of where he's quoting, he, it says in the very next line, and the day of vengeance of our God. But Jesus doesn't read that. Why? Why does he stop here? Because Jesus is emphasizing right now that here is the offer of salvation and it's giving he's giving the opportunity now is the time the implication is that the present opportunity will not last forever 
Because there is coming a day where Christ will come back and he will judge and the scripture will be fulfilled. The day of vengeance of our God will come. And whether Jesus Christ comes back or we die and stand before him and give an account of our lives, the day of vengeance of our God will come to those who are guilty and haven't come to Christ. Those who rejected the offer of Jubilee. Now is the time. Now is the time. The urgency is now. And this is what Jesus Christ is pressing upon his hearers. And this is what Jesus Christ is pressing upon us. Right now is the offer of salvation. But there's another application to be seen in this, in this passage that Jesus is quoting from. Um, a pa- something that I do believe that is often overlooked in the nature and mission of Christ. It cannot be denied that the poor here is speaking about spiritual poverty. Um, But there is a real sense where the poor, even of this world, physically, economically, um, who don't have means, who don't have um, the riches of this life, understand that life doesn't consist of themselves, that they are needy and they need help. And so often, these people who understand that they are in need are primed almost to uh, hear the gospel because they understand that life doesn't consist of themselves. And Jesus often ministered to the poor, to the broken, to the needy, and to those who are outcast, to those who are broken. And the call of the church and the mission of the church should resemble the call and life and ministry of Christ to minister to the broken and to the poor. Doesn't James talk about this? James says, hasn't God chosen the poor to be rich in faith? The poor often don't live under this delusion that life, you can just grab it by the horns and make what you want of it. You know, and our, our ministries, our lives should reflect that of Christ. But with these gracious words, Christ... He, he sparks a very favorable, at first, uh, response from the people. It says here, all the people spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. People were impressed with what he said. And moreover, people knew him. Oftentimes we forget that he's speaking to his own synagogue, so to speak. He's speaking to his own people that he had grown up with. And no doubt Jesus had an excellent reputation. The, the people of his hometown were not aware that this one that they had known since childhood could preach, could teach, could, knew the Bible so well, that knew the scriptures. And there was a certain sense that the people, they must have felt 
similar to what, if you can imagine somebody here who grows up to be a world-class musician or an astronaut or somebody important, a president, there'd be a certain sense of pride. I knew him when he was five, six years old. I knew him when he was in high school. And this is the response that the people saw and heard um, in Jesus. I knew him. I knew him. He's, and he's a great speaker. And he's preaching. And he's healing. And he's casting out demons. What an amazing thing it is. I knew him. But what exactly were the people thinking? What exactly was going on through their mind? You know, they were expecting a Messiah to come in their lifetime. Some were looking forward to the, the Messiah to come. And what were they expecting in this Messiah? A Messiah that would overthrow the oppression of Rome. A Messiah that would crush the enemies and give back to Israel um, the land that they once owned. A Messiah that would fight a military leader to take charge and lead the nation back into battle and conquest. Somebody like David, a greater than David. Somebody like Joshua, greater than Joshua. Somebody like Moses, greater than Moses. This is what the people were looking for. Somebody who was a military leader. And Jesus speaks these gracious words. And it's completely different than what the people were expecting. His redemption was not the redemption from the power of Rome, but from the power of the devil, from the power of sin, and from the power of this world. And yet, this speaks to us, does it not? How often do we make Jesus a savior of other things, other than sin, the devil, and the world? A savior of our finances, a savior of our relationships, a savior of oppressive bosses or whatever, a savior of everything else except sin. Accept the devil, accept the sin of the world, you know. And this is what um, was going on through the people's minds. And no doubt, the people were being enraged as they were hearing and thinking, considering what Jesus is actually saying. You're the Messiah? Really? Really? And this brings us to our second point, an enraged rejection by his audience, a passionate rejection. Very rarely does a sermon of one sentence elicit this type of response. The scriptures are fulfilled in your hearing. You know, Jesus, they had known him growing up and now he's standing before them all, announcing who he really is, the Messiah. And they reject him. And there's a mixed crowd. Some said to themselves, this is Joseph's son. We know him. How can he be the Messiah? Where, where, why is he saying this? 
how preposterous. And there's a certain aspect where the familiarity breeds contempt. And there's a measure of unbelief. And we see this in the actions of the people. Because they couldn't point to anything that Jesus had said in the past. They couldn't point to anything that Jesus had done in, the, in, in his past. They couldn't say, you can't be the Messiah because I saw you do this, that, and other. They couldn't point to any conversation they had with him. But they rejected him. Nevertheless, because they were familiar with him. They had watched him for the past 30 years grow up, seen his face, heard his voice, and his appearance was altogether familiar with them, and they couldn't receive his doctrine. And he says to them, Jesus, truly a prophet is not honored in his hometown. And this speaks to us, does it not? You know, how often do we, we who have the means of grace, who enjoy so much of the scriptures, enjoy prayers in the church, can despise the highest privileges when we become so familiar with them? Do you despise the ordinary means that God has given us? We, we are truly, truly a privileged people. Some of us have grown up in the church, and this is all we know, covenanted with God from an early age, baptized into the church, has heard the public reading and proclamation of the gospel week after week after week, year after year after year, having so much grace and mercy and compassion from God to you. Like, this is not something to take lightly. Because many people don't have it. Many people live in darkness um, and are blind and don't know why. You know, we are a very privileged people. Let us not take lightly what we've been given. You know, these people held to what they had been accustomed to and didn't treasure it. And as a result, they had the preaching of Jesus Christ himself, the Messiah come within their midst, and they rejected him in unbelief. They've been given much mercy, and they rejected it. You think about uh, Israel in the wandering of the wilderness. What happened? They were given manna from heaven, bread from heaven. And after years of eating the bread that God gave from heaven, they, after a while, complained, this is light bread. Why? We're tired of it. We want something more. You know, let us take heed. Let us take heed not to be like them, not to be like Israel, not to be like the people in this synagogue. It's an evil day when Jesus comes in the midst of his church 
And because of our familiarity with his name, we don't esteem him rightly. And seeing the hearts of his audience, he, he possesses a unique awareness of their thoughts. He, he says to them, you know, there's no doubt that you're going to say to me, physician, heal thyself. What you did over there, do over here. Um, and this says something about how Jesus could discern the thoughts and intents of the heart and he gives two Old Testament examples as a rebuke. One of them from Elijah and one from Elisha. You know, these two Old Testament examples um, serve the point that God will often, sometimes, save somebody outside of the covenant community of God almost to provoke the people to jealousy. That's what God did in these two Old Testament examples. God chose to heal Gentiles instead of people in Israel. In 1 Kings 17, it records the historical account where there was a famine. For three and a half years, it didn't rain. There was a famine. There was drought. And this, no doubt, was because of the sin of Israel. And it represented one of the consequences, one of the curses of Deuteronomy 11 and also chapter 28. They had broken covenant, and the Lord acted in a very surprising way in sending Elijah to a widow of Sidon instead of any of the widows of Israel. And he gave food and help. And this widow trusted in God, in the God of Israel, and was rewarded in a very similar way in a several event way, the same thing happened with Elisha. There were many leopards in Israel in the time of the kings. And in chapter 5 of Second Kings, we have recorded for us God healing a leper, a leper of Syria, an enemy of Israel. And not only an enemy of Israel, he was a commander of the armies of Syria. And he believed and was saved. And Jesus' point is very clear. Those who have the highest privilege at times don't respond to the message of salvation. Serves as a perfect picture. He came to his own, what John talks about, and his own received him not. But to as many that did receive them, to them he gave them the right to be children of God. And what about us here? You know, we've heard the message of salvation week in and week out. Do you know him? Have you trusted in him? Have you grown to love him, to adore him, to want to be with him? You know, we really do have such a great privilege to hear the gospel offered of salvation. And all of this, as we read about what happened in Nazareth, serves as an example for us. The people in Nazareth find themselves absolutely bewildered because they were confronted with the reality of Jesus addressing their unbelief. And this brings us to our second point. 
a shocking outcome. A shocking outcome. You know, this was just a normal Sabbath day. Just a normal worship service. And now the people are ready to kill Jesus. It, it's absolutely amazing. A normal church service now is turning on to be a full-blown murder scene. And the people are filled with wrath, anger, resentment. They can't take the words of Christ anymore. And because of this, they want to throw him headlong and murder him. His own neighbor, their own neighbor, their own friend, now becomes the object of their cruel intent. And you ask yourself, how did it get to this point? Why? Why did Jesus let it go so far? You know, Jesus, doesn't he know the hearts of all men? Doesn't he know this would have happened? So often, often, there are other times Jesus didn't entrust himself to the men, to the crowd, because he knew what was in the hearts of men, and he stopped. But Jesus let it come to this point. He even said and rebuked them. Couldn't he have stopped after he said, physician, heal thyself, and then walked off? Couldn't he have stopped after he gave his, old, his two Old Testament examples of Elijah and Elisha and departed? We read, he does not. The mob are ready to kill Jesus. And no doubt Jesus saw the rage that was boiling inside of their eyes. The, the anger that was rising against him. And yet something amazing happens. Because he says here that he passed through the midst of them. And you think about the scene. With such power, with such authority, with such a great self-composure, he's able to, with an entire crowd coming against him, walk in the midst of them with authority and walk right in the midst of them and walk out. This describes to us how Jesus Christ was indeed in control the whole time. He was truly in control um, of what was happening. But still, this raises the question, why did Jesus let it go this far? Why? Why, why bring it to this point? It's for this reason. Simple reason. For the rest of their lives the people of Nazareth would live with their conscience. We tried to kill Jesus. I tried to throw him off. I tried to throw him off a cliff. You were there and I was there. You tried to murder the Son of God. We attempted to kill Jesus. Who am I? And what have I done? For the rest of their lives, they would live with this in their conscience. Everyday churchgoers now are confronted with the reality of their own sin. 
of their own guilt. And so often in the Bible, in the Old Testament, God allows the sin of people to rise up so that they would recognize their own iniquity. Why did God let the children of Israel wander through the wilderness for 40 years? Why did he do that? Deuteronomy tells us that so that the people would recognize and see the sin that was inside of their own heart. You know? Why, why didn't God destroy the Amorites um, in the time of Abraham when he was called out? but waited until hundreds and hundreds of years with Joshua because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet fulfilled. And so the Lord waited until this point so that the people would see their own sin. And perhaps there's somebody here who maybe a year ago would have never envisioned themselves to be where they're at today spiritually. Maybe somebody has declined into a certain sin, a pattern, a lifestyle, a double lifestyle. Um, And you would have never imagined that it would have gotten to this point. Children lying to their parents, stealing, an illicit relationship, looking at things on the internet that should not be looked upon. And you ask yourself, how did I get to this point? My sin. What have I done? Do, do you see, do you see the words of Christ and why he said what he said and how they apply? Because Do you see your sin? Because this is why Jesus Christ came. Do you understand the words of Christ now? Jesus said, this is the word of God. The the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set liberty to those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. This is why Christ came to save sinners like me and like you. This is why Christ came. This is the message of Christ. You know, come to Christ and be reconciled. Confess your sin. He is faithful and just to forgive you of all unrighteousness, cleanse you, justify you, sanctify you, and glorify you in the end. This is the promise. This is the word of God. This is why Christ came. This is the message. This is what Jesus was saying to the people. Moreover, look at what's actually happening here. He came to his own, and his own received him not. He came to his own, and his own received him not. This this is a shadow of the cross. This is a shadow of the 
what was going to happen. You know, Jesus never did anything wrong. He never sinned. He never gave anybody a reason to crucify him. The message that he brought was one of reconciliation, peace, forgiveness. And he did this throughout his entire life. But because of sin, because of my sin and your sin, he was crucified on that cross. He didn't stop on the cross like he did here. Because on that cross, he would go all the way. He wouldn't walk in the midst of them and escape. But on that cross, he would actually take the blows with the whippings and the lashings of the Romans and be hung where he would take the wrath of God, the holy hatred of God for your sin and my sin, die in our place and be resurrected on the third day. This was a shadow of what was to come. This was a type almost of what was happening in the future, the cross of Christ. And the cross is a message of forgiveness, of reconciliation, of being made right with God. The offer of salvation is now. The year of Jubilee is here. He's offering the same message today. Moreover, something else pretty frightening happens as we're on our third point, a shocking outcome. You know, it says that he walked in the midst of them. He walked in them. He walked and he went his way. It says, these words are frightening. He went his way because it, it says that he left them to themselves. He departed from them. The people heard the gospel, the glorious good news of the kingdom coming with power, the fulfillment of Isaiah, and they rejected him and he went his way. He left them in unbelief. You know, some of us have been going to church for years, years. And the offer of salvation has been given over and over, freely proclaimed on and on. Come to Christ. Be reconciled. Come. Don't reject him. And do not let this opportunity pass you by. Do not let this opportunity pass you by. Right now is the year, the acceptable year of the Lord. The offer of salvation is now. If you hear his voice, come to him and be made right. You know, we started our sermon with the words, imagine. Imagine if Jesus Christ were here now preaching speaking in a very real sense Jesus Christ is here now and he is speaking through his word revelation talks about how Jesus Christ walks through the midst of the churches and considers every heart and every way the word of God is active and powerful and it's a 
It can pierce through the thoughts and intents of the heart, a discerner, through all these things. The Word of God speaks, and it exposes us for who we are. Jesus Christ is speaking in a real sense. The offer of salvation is now, and He gives sight to the blind. So, in conclusion, I want us just to bear in mind the beauty and the grace of Jesus. There is none like Him. There's none like our Savior. He's incomparable. With such tender compassion, He stoops down so low to our meeting place, and He offers salvation. To the poor, He gives riches. To the brokenhearted, He offers healing and wholeness. To those in bondage and oppressed, He offers liberty and freedom. To those who can't see, He offers sight, all of which is open, freely given to anyone who would come to Him. The acceptable year of our God is now. Salvation is free, and you can be made free. And for you, dear believer, child of God, he is a bottomless fountain that offers continual riches for your poverty. In the gospel, continual healing and wholeness for growing and maturity. He is increasingly setting you free from sin so you can walk in greater liberty. He's progressively opening up your eyes more and more so you can behold his glory and understand and know and love him all the more, being so gracious. So let us remember this great mercy of Christ and what he offers in salvation. Let us learn from this little meeting place that happened 2,000 years halfway around the world in Nazareth. You know, to us who have the word of God, we have a great responsibility to hear it, obey it, and share with others. Let us do so in his strength and might. Amen. Our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, how precious you are, God, that you would save sinners like us. You save the least of these, the broken, the outcast, those who are without, God, and you, in such tender compassion, sought us when we were not looking for you. Oh, dear God, we thank you for salvation. We thank you that we are not lost, but we're found, and we know the living God. We thank you for your word, for your word is life and light. And Lord, dear God, we pray that salvation would come in powerful ways within our midst, Lord, within our neighborhoods, Within this nation, God, we pray, 
Lord, that you would be so merciful to bring light, healing, wholeness, freedom for your own glory, for your own namesake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.